Welcome back, everybody. This is the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, coming to you um, as it is intended to on the first Friday in February. That's when this program uh, becomes available. I'm Matt Kaplan, the host of Planetary Radio, and I am joined once again by our Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate at the Planetary Society, Casey Dreyer. Welcome, Casey. Hey, Matt. Looking forward to getting super wonky uh, on this episode with you <laughs> and our listeners just a quick plug we have coming up very soon. The guest uh, this month is Matt Horahan from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He is the director of the R&D Budget and Policy Program there, and we go into it on federal investments in basic science research and development. It is super interesting, a little broader than what we tend to talk about in terms of just space uh, on the show, uh, but he is an expert, and you've probably seen the, a lot of the work he has done whether you know his name or not. So uh, look forward to that interview coming up soon. It's fascinating. And I think, you know, the Venn diagram of this would be what Matt deals with as a big circle and what we usually talk about as a small circle entirely in that big circle. I think that that, especially for those of you who really tune in to hear the inner workings in D.C., you will not be disappointed by this conversation. Here's something else that you won't be disappointed by. We've got Planifest coming up. Planifest 21 to Mars and back begins on Saturday, February 13. We have the greatest program. It, it really is, especially for a virtual event, I am blown away by the caliber of uh, guests that we are picking up for Planifest. You should check it out at uh, planetary.org slash planifest 21 and see this uh, this amazing lineup, not just of um, people who will be joining us on panels and in other sessions, but the topics that we will be covering. And uh, one of those sessions is yours, Casey. Yeah, Matt. Well, speaking of uh, really exciting guests, I will be there, as you uh, uh, mentioned. So uh, yes. we will be doing <laughs> doing a, an advocacy workshop for how do you advocate for Mars as part of Planet Fest. And then I will also be chairing a session on the future of human spaceflight. And we have uh, Rick Davis from NASA's uh, Science Mission Directorate. He's their lead exploration staff there talking about what it takes to get humans to Mars. So both of those will happen on, again, February 13th and 14th. And I should also say, this is our first Planet Fest in almost 10 years. This is a big deal. Virtual, as you might imagine. So I think, you know, it's like only 30 bucks for two days of great content. And and we'll throw this in for free. You will not get COVID by <laughs> attending Planet Fest. That, that is a free bonus. <laughs> and if you're a member of the Planetary Society, it's even cheaper. I think it's $20. All of this, all the details are where I said, planetary.org slash Planifest 21. Casey, that last Planifest, do you remember where you were during the, that climax, the seven minutes of terror? <laughs> Matt, you were standing right next to me as we watched uh, <laughs> Curiosity land on Mars. That was uh, a very profound moment in my life. And uh, that was, I think, three or so weeks after I was hired at the Planetary Society. So that was a great start to my now almost nine-year tenure here. I mean, that was jumping up and down, thrilling excitement, not just the two of us, of course, but the thousands of people who were there with us in the Pasadena Convention Center. And you'll have a chance to do that again. Yeah, it'll be virtual. But uh, join us when on Thursday, February 18th, uh, Perseverance goes through uh, seven more minutes of terror because uh, Bill Nye 
we'll be hosting our special sort of value-added coverage of uh, Perseverance's landing there in Jezero Crater. You've got even more reason to be excited this time, right? I mean, you have a, a direct connection to the mission. Yes, I married a direct connection uh, to the mission. <laughs> My wife is on the uh, Mastcam Z camera team. She was on the team when they proposed the camera way back in 2014. So I have seen her and her colleagues work on this mission for more than seven years. And it's a, a new experience to kind of share that kind of investment in the landing being successful, but also just truly appreciating how much work it takes to build things that go to Mars. It's just an astonishing amount. When you see this land on the 18th, and God willing, it will land safely, and and it will be a great, exciting moment. That moment is the result of uncountable amounts of human hours (laughs) spent working on that for many, many, many years, like planned down to the minutia. It's honestly awesome in the in the very literal sense the amount of work that people are able to put into this and this is what it takes to pull off this kind of exploration like the very fact i'm always reminded matt of you know of john f kennedy's statement when he was arguing for the moon landing you know like we do this not because it is easy but because it is hard the very nature of exploration like this the fact that it is hard is the value of doing it right you challenge some of the brightest people around the world to do some of the hardest things for purely peaceful motivations. It's just profound. And you see that kind of outcome and the inspiration it brings to people and the pathways and where they go after. It just really brings it home in a sense to see the value of this type of exploration. It's very inspiring. Here's to a landing on Mars by Perseverance that is just as exciting and successful as what we witnessed eight and a half years ago with uh, with Curiosity, which was uh, so incredibly exciting. Here's also to hoping that uh, we will see a continuation of exploration around our solar system and more broadly, lots of science. Uh, you've got some news which I had not heard about, some support for uh, the Artemis uh, a uh, human lunar exploration program that just came out today as we speak. Yeah, well, we, we're about, what, two weeks now into the Biden administration, two and a half weeks or so, yeah. give or take. And we're seeing a little bit of hints like the administration themselves hasn't announced any new policy. Biden hasn't spoken about it. I think the White House press secretary got her first question about Artemis, either today or yesterday. She did not have an answer (laughs) on it. (laughs) But for those who are doubting necessarily the future of Artemis, again, I think we can put a little bit of those uh, uncertainty to rest. We saw a letter signed by 11 Democratic senators to the Biden administration asking them to request what they called full funding for the human landing system for Artemis uh, going forward in the next budget proposal. Due any month now for NASA. <laughs> and uh-huh. also to support, yeah, it's it's always a little delayed when a new administration comes in. But it's important, I think, because they, they simultaneously emphasize the need for pursuing lunar exploration, but also for supporting NASA's science programs, which is music to my ears, because what we had seen over the last few years uh, under the Trump administration was great support for human exploration, Uh, But then they'd try to cancel, you know, the Roman Space Telescope. They'd try to cancel some Earth science missions. Uh, They'd try to cancel the Sophia Observatory. So what we'd love to see 
is an everybody wins approach, right? Because then everybody wins. Um, but it's eminently doable. Congress always restored the funding. So what you're seeing here is a good contingent of, of Democrats, including the one of the highest ranking Democrats in the Senate, Patty Murray from Washington State, throwing their support very publicly behind Artemis, which is, again, because of its, I'd say, ties to the previous administration also gets a lot of support from Republicans, uh, particularly in the Senate. So if the Biden administration really wants to, I think they could just continue to grow NASA at a healthy clip, support both of these efforts, uh, Artemis and and the robotic science missions. And that's like an easy political win. Uh, If they want that as a political win, I think it's there for the taking. And this is a good sign that you see that Congress is kind of saying, hey, propose this, we're willing to back you up on it. Casey, you know what I take as a very good omen? It's that moon rock on display in the Oval Office. Right. Yeah, he got a moon rock uh, to inspire him about what America can do when it wants to. And I would always just emphasize if I was talking to the president, uh, which I have not, I should emphasize, but if I were, (laughs) I'd say, you know, it's that moon rock did not just happen, right? You know, it took, as I've done the analysis, took about $280 billion to bring that moon rock back. It's not enough just to say, I want to do an Apollo style, you know, a moonshot, <laughs> whether it's to the moon or to cure cancer or to whatever, you got to put the resources behind it. That's how they succeed, right? It took a lot of effort, both parties during the 1960s sustained uh, commitment to ensure the success of Apollo. I think you're seeing again, there's a lot of positive signs about this. Again, I'd say reasonably, the president and his administration are really focusing on on the coronavirus pandemic right now. That's obviously going to be the big focus. But, and I should maybe just tease this by about uh, next week, I'd say, in terms of the time of recording this. So uh, February 10th or so, uh, the Planetary Society will be releasing its formal recommendations to the Biden administration about, you know, what it should focus on in NASA. You won't find too many surprises from what we've talked about here, uh, if you're listening, uh, long-term listener to the show. But again, I think the opportunities to plan for the economic recovery, NASA is a part of that solution. And investing in space and doing these kind of hard programs that really invigorate and inspire people in the high-skilled manufacturing, uh, STEM fields, and critical thinking, and peaceful cooperative collaboration, these are all opportunities that fit right in with what we're trying to do as a nation, whether you're Republican or Democrat. And seeing NASA as that tool, not as something that's done out there, right? But something that's done here on Earth for us, I think is going to be key into presenting it as a a solution to a problem, rather a problem to be solved. I cannot wait to read those uh, recommendations that uh, you, on behalf of all all Planetary Society members, and I'm one of those, will uh, soon be forwarding to the uh, Biden administration, Casey. Let's go ahead and uh, dive into this uh, wonky discussion <laughs> that you have with your guest, Matt. <laughs> Matt, I assume you, you mean that very positively. <laughs> oh, how could it be <laughs> otherwise? <a> <laughs> Wonks make I, the world go round. <laughs> that, that is actually very true. I, and as you point out, I think we tend to talk about a subset. So this is like a superset discussion about overall R&D. And I think one of the key takeaways for me, and this is what I always wanted to talk to Matt about, is relatively, you know, the the entire scope of US investment in basic science and development. It's about 160 or so billion a year, right out of a $4.5 trillion budget. If you accept all of NASA's all basic R&D debatable, but roughly, you know, say 20 billion of that 160 billion goes to NASA. 
the other, the rest of it is, is goes to the Department of Defense. I mean, it's kind of amazing how much this country does, all things considered. Like we're spending about 10% of all of our discretionary funding on science uh, and basic development. Think of what we could do with twice of that investment. Yeah. Right. We, we're literally benefiting now, very literally, from advances in basic research for mRNA vaccine uh, development, CRISPR genetic, and you know, just all of this genetic analysis and, and research that has been done for quote unquote no return on investment by basic R and D over the last forty years. But suddenly, it becomes very, very valuable. This is a relative pittance that we spend as a nation, and it's kind of an, amazing to think about. What if we just push that up a little more. Just think we, you know, let's just think of what we could find or what inspiration or what's, you know, scientific discoveries or what beneficial consequences to humanity are just waiting to be discovered. And so, you know, that's kind of the subtext of this discussion. It's not as if uh, uh, perhaps our major competitor across the globe is, uh, is not uh, doing uh, the same with its investment in uh, R&D. Any nation that really thinks about it starts heavily investing in R&D as soon as it can, right? I mean, that, that argument, the fundamental argument really isn't in question, whether it's a valuable use of funds, right? I mean, that we go back into the 1940s, Vannevar Bush, with the Science the Endless Frontier report, where he basically pitched that. It's a very new concept that the government spends public money on science for the benefit, you know, not just for the pure good, but also as a as fundamentally an aspect of national security. You know, can we compete on a technological global world. So it's always a little baffling to me that even though the fundamental argument is no longer in question, we still have to argue for the application of that, in a sense, through the budget process every year. We have to beg, cajole, <laughs> you know, push people to say, you know, push a little bit more to this basic R&D because we guarantee benefits to the nation um, in the long term and, and very likely short term too. Well, we'll keep pushing, but um, for the next few minutes, we'll be listening to uh, Matt Hurahan. Uh, anything else you want to say before we uh, dive in? Let's uh, go right to it. All right, here is Casey with his guest. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on to the Space Policy Edition. Glad you're here. Thank you for having me. So before we really go into uh, a broader discussion of federal R&D, I think it might be actually quite useful to just really quickly define what we mean by it, if there's a more technical aspect, I think we all have a general idea of what research and development kind of stands for. But I was thinking about this today, like, how do you define research versus development? Why, are, why do we talk about these two aspects of what we tend to lump together? Yes, that's a that's a great question. So the technical answer, right, is that the definitions for these things are actually established officially by uh, by OMB, it's the Office of Management and Budget uh, at the White House. And we can, you know, think of basic science as the quest for fundamental knowledge, you know, an understanding of natural phenomena. Applied science, we're starting to move into taking that knowledge and, you know, and pursue experimentation towards some kind of a particular use, uh, you know, the creation of a, of a technology, a, a process, some kind of an artifact. And then development goes a little bit deeper into that creation of a, of a, of a you know, a concrete product or process, you know, specific use that um, is intended ultimately to result in some kind of a, some kind of a usable technology. Now, having said that, there's I, one of the things, one of the distinctions I like, there's a book, I believe it's called Cycles of Invention and Discovery, and, and, and folks can, uh, can look that up on their preferred search engine, but it's a great book on the research enterprise and 
tackles a lot of it uh, gets the, the 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 question of basic versus applied research and why do we call them this and it uh, you know develops an alternate approach to to talking about R and D and 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 science and technology technological development. Uh, but one of the distinctions they they make that I really like between research and development is the idea that research is unscheduled, right? It's creative experimental activity trying to answer questions uh, and and develop knowledge. Whereas development is is a scheduled kind of activity. When we're doing you know systems engineering to actually take you know the ideas underlying some new technology and actually build a device, you know, build a prototype with certain set of milestones and cost targets and and things along those lines. I mean that is that is development. And and maybe the last thing I'll say is that for for federal purposes, there really aren't that many big funders of development, right? The the, the bulk of the development enterprise is really the Pentagon, the military branches building new you know weapon systems and tanks and planes and communications platforms and and what have you. Um, that accounts for the bulk of development. NASA, unsurprisingly, accounts for a big chunk of the development of, of you know the, the, the non defense development. Then you've got like DOE and, and transportation and a couple of others, but but really when we talk about development, the biggest by far chunk of that is, is, is the defense weapons and technology acquisition system. Um, research on the other hand, that's like the domain of the National Science Foundation and the Office of Science at DOE, NIH, um, and parts of DOD as well. But research tends to be a, a much more non-defense civilian oriented activity. Whereas development again is is it's Pentagon a lot of it it's it's military it's weapons weapons and, and national security technology you know with some leftover for for space exploration and others would development be something like creating the uh, like an observatory or putting like the um, gravity wave observatories for example kind of taking a new concept and then deploying a brand new application. Or is it more of a technical idea than this? So, I mean, like you talk about with the Pentagon taking and creating these new like physical things, like willing something into existence almost out of these new theoretical constructs. And do you see that also in, in a more limited sense in terms of how we develop new ways to interrogate the, the cosmos or the, the natural world around us through like instrumentation? Possibly. You know, the reality of it is that what gets called development versus research, I mean, it can be very subjective. You know, each agency that funds these activities has its own people. I mean, it, it, they all work from the same, in theory, work from the same definition. Um, but they all have you know, their own people, their own budget offices working on this stuff, trying to figure out what they should call basic versus applied versus development. At times, they may work with their, you know, their partners, whether it's uh, research investigators or contractors or whoever, to try to work with them to help characterize and classify how to, you know, what, what to call the activities. The other thing I didn't mention is that there, there is another category known as R&D plant. It's a small portion of the overall pie, but R&D plant refers to facilities and equipment. Something like LIGO, I mean, my, I, haven't, I, I don't know, but my guess would be that portions of that that were federally funded, the development of the, of the, the, the tool itself and the, the, you know, the, the hard technologies themselves, some of that may have been development when they're actually trying to, to create the tool itself. But then you've also got this other category for R&D plant, where once they've created it, they've created a, a, a working technology, then they've actually got to go build it in reality. Things like, like I don't know, lab construction. I mean, that gets characterized as, as R&D plant. Research vessels often will get 
categorized as R&D plant. So that's a whole other category. It's not a huge portion of the of the overall pie. You know, it's a relatively small slice compared to research and development, but that would also account for a lot of the the things that you're that you're talking about. So you mentioned uh, Pentagon development, and also they do research too. And I, let's make maybe make a big cleave in terms of how I think we're going to talk really about R&D going forward, at least in terms of my interests. You have kind of the Department of Defense in the United States, and then you have kind of all the other agencies in terms of right. the pot of money that is spent on R&D funding from government. Can you just briefly address that outline? And then we can dive down into the, some of these other agencies. But how is this division? How, you know, roughly, what is that division? What does the Pentagon spend? Is that kind of considered separate? Is that, a, is that similar in kind to what we do in terms of civilian R&D? Or is it really a specialty application of it? That's a great question. So I guess I'll start with the, the outline first, right? So the, the overall, and I'm just kind of going to speak in very much in generalities here, but so the overall federal R&D budget is about 160 billion, roughly, you know, give or take. About half of that, these days, a little bit less than half, I think, is is Pentagon R&D. So the remainder would be mostly non-defense. The other piece that we haven't mentioned is the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is a defense agency that is defense R&D spending, but it gets countered under the Department of Energy, which is a uh, you know most of its other programs are are, are, are non-defense programs, its research programs uh, especially. So it's a it's a fairly even split. Complicating things is also the fact that they've actually changed around what they count as R and D uh, just within the last few years. So it used to be that defense was slightly more than half. Now they're slightly less than half because of some accounting changes that we can get into if you really want to. But but that gets gets pretty wonky pretty quickly. But so DoD is about half now. Is it similar or different? I mean, again, you know, most of the defense spending, it's it's defense contractors, you know, it's like Raytheon and and other such contractors actually trying to build new build new systems. That said, DOD does fund a pretty substantial research enterprise as well. Now, a lot of that is going to be intramural, Army labs, Air Force labs, etc. But they do fund a fairly substantial extramural research enterprise as well. And that's, you know, that includes universities, might include, you know, other national labs and perhaps some for-profit firms. Um, you know, you've got agencies like DARPA that are within the Pentagon that fund all extramural research. And so a lot of that stuff, you know, I mean, there, there may be some additional rules and restrictions on it. We're talking about national security, of course. I mean, a lot of the people that talk about you know, the importance of fostering a research enterprise, I mean, they don't, many folks don't really distinguish much, in my experience, between funding from NSF, DOE, uh, and other, you know, other such agencies and DOD, DOD is a funding source. So I think once you get, you know, especially on the basic science side, right, the, the fundamental stuff, I, you know, it's, it's I'm not sure if I would see much of a distinction, but I think it's more once you get further down the pipeline, right? That's what I was wondering, though, is, is basic research from DOD done with some sort of applied eye, uh, you know, as opposed to something like NSF, which is going to give potentially like a grant for someone to look, you know, refine the cosmological constant or something very abstract, fundamental, very not applied. Does the DOD say, well, we'll, we'll do basic research, but it's always force feeds forward into some defense purpose. And That's, that to me, yes. you know, strikes me as like a distinction in kind almost that it's DOD funding is not done for just the 
benefit of greater human knowledge. It's always done for a national security purpose, theoretically. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But that's also kind of, you know, I think that's fairly similar to, you could kind of characterize a lot of NIH research like that, right? I mean, they're not just doing it to expand knowledge. They're doing it because they want to eventually understand disease to be able to treat it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, basic science coming out of the Office of Science, right? Some of it is very much pure knowledge, uh, as you described. Others also have an eye toward uh, some kind of a use. But yes, DOD would definitely, would, you know, I would wholly categorize as use-inspired basic research, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and I wonder if this kind of just gets to the larger purpose of why does government spend money on research and development? Like, it's not going to be purely for curiosity, right? Like, it's not some high-minded, purely high-minded reason, right? It's going to have, in political system, it has to have some sort of reason, right? And and reason on some at least relatively short to mid-range times. To your point about the, the National Institutes of Health, it's kind of the same point, right? Like it's it's not just to understand DNA better or how viruses work better. It's to understand how viruses work better in order to make better treatments for them that we're clearly benefiting today. And I don't know if it's just me or I feel like there's a lot of people who just kind of react negatively to the idea of Department of Defense research getting so much compared to what we call civilian. But it may just be a, a distinction without conceptual distinction without a real applicational difference by the way that you're kind of phrasing it. And when it, when it comes down to it, people are still doing basic research and it almost doesn't matter as much where the money is coming from. I, I think it, it, to some extent, I mean, because there is a long history of, mm-hmm. you know, defense technology spinoffs. So there are some real world, you know, oh, non-national yeah. well, security, right? <laughs> ARPANET, so, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd say exactly. it's a notable one. <laughs> as we, yeah, as we, yeah, as we speak over the internet now, I mean, here we are, but, yeah. um, but it's also, so one thing I'll say, just in terms of the dollars, so it's worth noting the non-defense, and this is off the top of my head, but, but the non-defense research budget is probably something like $80 billion now. The Defense Department research budget, right? So not development, but just research, that's, uh, I believe, about seven or eight billion. So, I mean, it's like there are 10 times in terms of just research. I mean, the, the vast majority of it is on the non-defense side. So I don't know if that um, yeah, <laughs> that, that helps you feel any better. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's that's a good distinction, right? To what you were saying earlier, most right. of the Department of Defense is going to be the development side of things. The big, so big D projects. Yeah. 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 So let's move. Let's move on. So I'm going to kind of just wanted to talk about the defense side and generally, you know, for my interest and I think most of our audience, we're going to focus on the civilian sides. I just wanted to touch on the defense side, because when you when you look at the numbers and I should say um, we'll link to this in our show notes. But if you go to the AAAS.org website, you can see a lot of Matt's work under the budget and policy resources area. I see your plots that you generate and keep updated, basically used everywhere. Everyone, anytime someone talks about science spending, they'll grab one of your charts, stick it in their talk. And it's like, yep, I, I can recognize that. Um, <laughs> every, the fonts and the and the what I imagine is Excel um, yes. tables of putting <laughs> these together. So when we're talking about these things, you can go and reference the exact numbers online. They're just a fantastic resource. And it's one of the reasons, Matt, I'm such a fan of the work that you do is that you do such careful, thoughtful work with this. Thank you. Thank you. And it's and it's for, maybe we should say now that the, the URL is actually really easy. It's just AAAS.org. So AAAS.org slash RD. To your point, though, about overall R&D spending by the U.S. government, you said it's about 160-ish billion 
we're just going to kind of do hand waving numbers off the top of our heads for this. I want to put this in context, right? Because this is something that is in terms of when we start to talk about the policy aspect of this. I'm really interested. I, I like this as seeing as a percentage of what we call discretionary spending, right? The amount of money Congress decides to spend every year. This is distinct, right? Because a lot of people will put it as a chunk of overall U.S. spending, but something, what is it? Three quarters of all U.S. spending is mandatory, right? It's just automatically right. happening by law. And so it's not really a political, it doesn't represent a political statement or a policy statement because it's already written into laws, automatic spending. But the annual churn in terms of appropriating money, that's political trade-offs, right? There's a process that Congress goes through and the White House proposes. And that kind of, I think, is a better gauge in terms of what priority does science occupy? And so you have some, again, great charts that show kind of over time, relative percentage of this discretionary spending pot of U.S. government's money that goes into R&D. You can break it out by non-defense and defense, which I like. And, and non-defense, give or take around, seems 10% for about the last 30 years. So there's a story here. I'd be kind of interested to see your interpretation of this story. From my kind of broad interpretation, I'd say, you know, immediate peak of the Cold War, starting in the, well, probably starting earlier in the 50s, but really pick up data in the 60s, it peaks at about 25% of non-defense uh, discretionary spending. Right. Space race. Right. <laughs> then trails down. Is that all driven by NASA, that big bump? And then it was kind of this aberration, then it kind of reduces back. And then from there on out, it's about 10 or so percent for the last 30, 40 years. You know, it's kind of gone up a little bit and then maybe in the 90s and then down a little bit during Budget Control Act. But it really seems, I'd say, stuck at this level. And so of all the money the government decide or the Congress decides to spend every year, they say about 10% goes to basic or, or general research and development. Yeah. That seems low. Like, it seems it should be high. Like, is there anyone who's looked at the story of investing in science research and said, ah, you know what, boy, I wish we hadn't done that. That didn't turn out well. I w <laughs> I'm really sad we have all these like mRNA quick vaccines right now. Like, we really shouldn't have invested so <laughs> yeah. much. How come it can't break out of that? And again, I wonder if it's because you had this external factor of a highly technological scientific com competitor of a different ideological structure, which drove internal political consensus in the United States to highly invest in R&D in general? Or do you think it's more complicated than that? I think in terms of the space race and then, you know, what's happened after the kind of, you know, I mean, I think of it as an equilibrium, really, since like the mid-1970s, roughly, once we got past the space race. Because um, that big hump is, that is entirely space race. In fact, if you take a look at federal R&D by functional category, right? And there, there be, you know, budget functions, and there's a space function and other and, and agriculture and general science and energy and, and others. The space function is like it just absolutely explodes in the 1960s during Apollo. And a lot of people do look back at the space race and kind of think of that as these golden days when federal R&D was, was much bigger. Well, it was bigger because of the space race. Mm -hmm. um, if you take away space and then, you know, Cold War defense related spending, most of that that hump disappears. And so, you know, again, obviously, you know, the motivations for the space race are well known and, and, you know, are what they are. Since then, I think you're, you're right. And it was driven by that international uh, competition with, with national security undertones that has been mostly missing um, on the non-defense side you know, for my lifetime, basically more than my lifetime. So there's a couple, a couple things here, I think worth noting. Number one, Annual appropriations is an incredibly decentralized process, rife with trade-offs. 
uh, as I think you mentioned. If an appropriator, and this is you know partly tied up, I think, in budget resolution and, and some of the big rules governing the annual spending process, but I mean, if I'm a champion for NASA or you know the National Science Foundation or whatever, and I want to see a big plus up. Well, first off, if I'm a champion for science, I mean, I can't just like, you know, wave a wand and plus up science overall. I've got to plus it up across multiple agencies and multiple spending bills. And each one of those spending bills is where a lot of the trade-offs happen. Because, you know, when overall spending is going up, often spending increases kind of get distributed and kind of handed around the various spending bills. And there are 12 different spending bills. Sometimes you'll have some prioritized over others, no doubt. But there's a lot of continuity in the system. So when spending goes up for you know one bill, it goes up for several. And then even if spending is going up in a single spending bill, okay, let's say you want to plus up funding for the National Science Foundation. Well, in this day and age, NSF in that spending bill has to compete with the Justice Department, NASA, the Commerce Department. And so if there's extra funding in that bill, there may be a lot of people who would love to see increases for some of the science programs in that bill. But there are also a lot of people who care a lot about DOJ, FBI, U.S. Marshals, among the other programs, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, you know, the Economic Development Administration, throw out an example. There is an enormous array of competing interests and competing demands on the, the federal budget. So I, when we look at this, this long-term um, R&D equilibrium that you've identified, I mean, I think that's probably the, the most likely answer is simply the fact that the demands for science uh, and, and, and R&D spending have, haven't, have never really superseded. They've stayed even with other demands on the discretionary budget and all the different things that government does. Line items in the federal budget, they're there because somebody wants them there, right? Somebody thinks they're important, you know, all the way down from like from NASA all the way down to like, you know, the Marine Mammal Commission or whatever. You know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of different things we expect government to do and different constituencies expect government to do. So breaking out of that, that equilibrium, it's very difficult because of all the different things we want government to do. Now, the one thing I'll, I'll, I will point out, though, so you're looking at the top line, right? The, the non-defense R&D top line. If you were to drill down and separate that out by different agencies, you'll actually see a somewhat more complicated story. While total non-defense R&D has been very stable within the discretionary budget, What's happened over time is that some agencies, and these are mostly basic science funders, actually. So uh, the National Science Foundation, the Office of Science within DOE, NIH, certainly. These have actually increased as a share of the discretionary budget, the non-defense discretionary budget. So uh, that you know goes back like 40 years and it's not perfectly smooth, but but it's fairly clear. So so the story there is that over time, appropriators actually do seem to be trying to prioritize some of those kinds of agencies. On the other hand, other research funders like USDA would be a big one, EPA and you know several others, they have declined as a share of the non-defense discretionary budget. And again, these are very kind of gradual trends. They're not super extreme for the most part, but they're there. So, I mean, it does seem like Congress is, has been for many years, and again, this is going back like 40 years now, has been trying to some extent extent to prioritize some of those basic science funders, but they've deprioritized environmental research, agricultural research, possibly like infrastructure research and transportation. That I'm not sure where those numbers are. So there is a bit of a differenti- differentiation even within the non-defense R&D budget, which is kind of interesting. 
there's like three things I want to follow up with that. This is something I noticed while working through some of your numbers the other day for um, a talk I was giving. To your point about the story beneath that top line about, you know, so we've had non-defense spending on, on R&D be about 10%, let's say, for the last 30, 40 years. But in that context, you've seen the rise of the National Institutes of Health to be, I forget, something close to $40 billion a year now. Like almost half of all non-defense R&D funding now is at the NIH. Within that 10% envelope, you've had the growth from almost zero to now half of that being occupied by the NIH. So that kind of says something had to give in order for that NIH to grow to that portion. And so, yeah, there, there's been like these, these huge changes in the makeup of that 10%. Your point, I think, is well made that the, there's no single science pot of funding in the U.S. appropriations process and the congressional appropriations process. As you said, it's distributed through a bunch of different agencies. And, and some of those agencies, you said USDA, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, obviously NASA, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, despite that they all share some kind of science aspects of what they do, they're, they're managed and overseen by very different committees. It is interesting. It, it is a hard, it's kind of amazing in, in a way that it has maintained overall about 10%. <laughs> yeah, I call that. I mean, it is, it's, it is, you're absolutely right. It, as, it is an incredibly decentralized appropriation system, right? There's 12 different spending bills. I'll give you an idea and your listeners an idea. I mean, there's, there's 12 different spending bills and I believe something like nine out of those 12 are responsible for at least a billion dollars in R&D and some, you know, a lot more, you know, there are six that are responsible for like two to at least two to three billion or more. But so there's lots of different people involved in making lots of different decisions over lots of different pots for that overall R&D enterprise. I sometimes refer to that as the, the fact that it's, it's at this equilibrium seemingly, and it has been for decades it is. I kind of sometimes I call that the annual miracle. It, it, it almost <laughs> it almost defies logic. Like it doesn't make any sense that Congress, that all these different people over decades can make different decisions and different trade offs, and we still end up at the same place. That's Casey Dreyer and his Space Policy Edition guest Matt Hurahan of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They'll be back with more after this break. Greetings, Bill Nye here. Saturday, Sunday, a fleet of spacecraft, including NASA's Perseverance rover, is arriving at Mars. Join our live online celebration. Planet Fest 21 is February 13th and 14th. I'll be there with explorers, including Jim Bell, Katie Mack, author of The Martian, Andy Weir, NASA JPL Chief Engineer Rob Manning, and my old friend Phil Blake, the bad astronomer. Get your tickets at planetary.org slash planetfest21. We're going to Mars! <sighs> Matt, was that was that too much? I, I got into it there. No, you uh, you nailed it, boss. Would a better policy be to have a single? Let's just ignore the structures of Congress for a second to say, would it would it make more sense to have a single pot of R and D money that is then distributed to agencies to use for their work? So you don't have the same kind of. So instead of you maybe have you have one congressional subcommittee of appropriations that has the R and D account. And then federal agencies get doled from that. And so you could have one kind of champion focusing on overall R&D. Do you think that would result in better outcomes or would you be kind of stuck in the same type of system no matter what? I don't know. I think you'd still, I mean, there are probably all kinds of challenges with that kind of an approach that I'm not seeing. I mean, I, I mean, if I read you right and what, what you're suggesting, I mean, I think one of the downsides would be that you're reducing... I mean, doesn't that reduce the number of 
stakeholders that are responsible for allocating appropriations. Uh, kind of, yeah. Or, or it would create a very invested set of stakeholders. Like that's the kind of the flip side, right? That you have an instant, like a, a group committed to R&D as a concept and growing that pie. I, I, I don't, I haven't thought this through deeply. <laughs> I'm just more kind of thinking, <laughs> yeah, sure. are there more efficient ways to allocate this? Or is this a fundamental limit of our system that we spread the oversight and allocation of federal R&D through so many different committees for so many different purposes? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it's a great question. It's kind of fun to think about. I mean, having... So concentrating the power and the interests, I mean, so there is a relationship between, and this has been, you know, been showed in the literature, there, there is a relationship between memberships of the various appropriations subcommittees and the geographic aspects of, of membership in those subcommittees and the, you know, the various institutions and, and constituents that they represent, right? So you're more likely to have to, to represent an army base if you're on the defense subcommittee. Obvious to say, but you know, statistically it's it's you know it's it's not just random. You know, as Tip O'Neill says, all politics is local. And so you know, I do think it's worth thinking about if you bring down the size of you know or bring down the number of appropriators who might be expected to care about R and D, I feel like that could very easily lead to a much more stratified system. You know, like what happens if, you know, the chair of that subcommittee, one year it's it's uh, you know one Congress it's somebody from Alabama, right? And so, you know, NASA exploration and, you know, NASA rockets are, are you know, the bit, one of the big priorities. But then, you know, next Congress, maybe it's chaired by somebody from from a, a district with a, you know, world class research university. And maybe it's less about NASA all of a sudden. And it's more about competitive uh, grants from NIH. I'm sort of trying to think through the, the distributive implications of that. And, and it just seems like you'd be weakening. Maybe that's the question. Is it better to have a small core of extremely devoted appropriators or is it better to have a broader core with varying interests but who will go to bat for different pieces of the enterprise based on their constituent needs i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> we don't have to solve this problem idea. today <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no i mean it's interesting and and that's a good point like in a system where you have geographical representation like our congress parochialism can be a strength for science, right? For no, like you don't have to be a huge fan of science if you have a large accelerator or something in your district and you want to keep jobs there. Then it's a very practical matter and, and science kind of rides along on that parochial interest um, of keeping that institution funded. Or, which is which or, is kind of how it works, right? I mean, yeah, exactly right. That's... Yeah, and so, and, and in a way, the, 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 the White House almost then acts as that centralized idea of kind of taking this overall view of R&D theoretically that this would yeah. be a White House perspective. And so it's kind of balanced. Off. Anyway, all right. Well, we, we can move on from my uh, completely rejiggering uh, the entire congressional apparatus <laughs> okay. uh, for science. But that is uh, it's a good point. And so but but the point is fundamentally is that you have science R&D investment in the United States is this distributed system, a distributed process that doesn't have any kind of single point of pressure to increase. And, and the closest you would come, I think, would be through the uh, annual president's budget request, which would kind of take and prioritize certain initiatives cross government over others. Do you see this in, in, in other countries, this setup? Do you know, like, how much is this kind of a system that's replicated in nations beyond the United States? Or is this kind of idiosyncratic? Oh, it's very different. I mean, so we, I mean, we have a, you know, we have a presidential system, 
in which the you know we have the separation of powers uh, and we have an incredibly strong legislature when it comes to funding issues. Most countries don't have that, right? Think about you know parliamentary system. The executive grows out of the legislature and or the parliament, and legislators basically have less of a chance to make big impacts on the on the budget. It varies country to country, but uh, you know I think it's safe to say that in our system, in terms of budget matters, the the executive is much weaker and the legislature much stronger than 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 most other places. Having said that, does it make it easier for other countries to make kind of big strategic investments? Maybe. You look at the UK for many years, they have surprisingly underperformed in R&D investment. They're not as research intensive uh, an economy as we are. On the other hand, you know, you do have, you know, in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, if you look at like research intensity, the US has been kind of slowly surpassed by Germany, some of the Scandinavian countries, Korea, certainly, Uh, you know, Korea, I think is the world leader, or I think they're number two behind Israel now in terms of research intensity overall. Uh, and that's public and private sources. I don't know. I think it's it's jury's probably out as to whether you know our system makes it easier or harder to make kind of sustained long-term strategic investments. You know, we've been obviously talking all about federal investment, but how does that compare to like private investment in the United States right now um, into research and development or from industry, I guess I'm mainly thinking of. Is there a fundamental difference in kind between the two? Are they complementary fundamentally at this point? Because you look at some of the charts, again, on, on the AAAS website, and you can see industry scope of R&D appears to even dwarf what the federal government spends. Yes, for sure. So these days, uh, you know, government used to be, the federal government used to be the number one funder back again, you know, space race era. But industry surpassed the federal government right around 1980. And now... You know, industry funds you know, roughly twice what the federal government funds in terms of R&D, you know, is by far the, the number one funder of R&D in the U.S. But it is, as you said, it, it is, you know, it is very different. Um, industrial R&D is almost entirely deep, right? It's something like 80 cents for every dollar from industry is development. And then of the remainder, maybe 12 or 13 cents or so is applied research. And then, you know, a small amount, five, five or six cents of every dollar is is basic science, something like that. And that's from the industrial side. Government, especially on the non-defense side, is able to focus on basic and applied research. So non-defense, federal non-defense R&D is almost entirely R. That means, you know, the government is able to fund things like, uh, or agencies like NSF, the inquiry that, that they fund. You know, government's able to take on riskier ventures and, and, and fund them uh, in the long term with uncertain outcomes. Industry tends to not do that kind of thing. And I, you know, I, I say that with, you know, the major asterisk, because I mean, there are exceptions, there always will be exceptions. Lately, we have seen uh, an uptick in what gets called basic research in certain sectors, you know, certainly pharmaceuticals on the industrial side, uh, the spending is up in basic science, a few other, you know, I want to say, you know, possibly aerospace, if I recall correctly, in a couple other sectors, um, where, where basic science in industry is up. Um, which is a good thing, certainly. Again, it's we, we've got kind of the long-term trend in industry away from higher risk activities, away from quite as much scientific collaboration. Uh, some research has pointed to, uh, you know, shifting cultures um, within industrial labs. You know, again, kind of painting with a very broad brush here. 
So we think about kind of the approach to taking on risk, uh, the approach to kinds of uncertain activities represented by research. You know, I would certainly argue that industry and government are very complementary to one another. Government often does things that industry can't or won't. And then industry similarly does things that government uh, can't uh, and perhaps shouldn't. Um, you know, one example that, you know, I often like to point to is, is this agency, ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy. Relatively young agency. It's only about a decade old uh, in the Department of Energy. And they fund transformational, innovative energy technologies. And the Government Accountability Office, which is federal watchdog, took a look at them some years back uh, and assessed whether the kinds of technologies that ARPA-E funds, you know, whether ARPA-E should be funding them, could they have gotten private investment if ARPA-E hadn't picked up the research funding tab. Um, And their finding was that even for the least, for for venture capital, right, the least risk averse portion of our source of capital among industry, um, a lot of what ARPA-E was doing, most of what ARPA-E was doing is it was too risky even for them. So that kind of a, you know, to me, that's kind of how I I think of the the federal, federal enterprise overall. The government is able to take on a lot of riskier activities that industry is unwilling to. In addition, there are, of course, I mean, most of what, as we talked about earlier, most of what government funds has some kind of a mission attached to it, right? Public health, national security, low carbon uh, energy resources. I mean, that's, you know, to me, the biggest motivator, one of the biggest motivators for government funding R&D is because it it ensures that we get R&D that fulfills these public missions. And it's not perfect. It's never perfect. But but funding R&D, you know, is a great way to ensure that you're fulfilling the public interest along many dimensions. I feel like there's a tension between this idea. I mean, I agree with you. That it's like government should be funding areas that have higher risk or uncertain payout, right? I mean, that's like the essence of basic research and development. But at the same time, you know, we've seen this, I'd say, growing trend over the last few decades. People in government or politicians, elected officials, looking for and highlighting what they consider to be absurdities or examples of wasteful spending of basic research. The very point of which that's what they're to do, right? To do things that may or may not work, that may seem weird, right? To, to provide that. I guess this, this tension, I guess, worries me at a certain level. Do you feel like we still have a government policy that allows for failure? Of these types of things, or, or you know, the, the the worry that I have is that you've with these examples or pretty high profile areas in terms, particularly ARPA E, but uh, other areas in which you hit on issues like climate, that there is a, a chilling effect whether or not they fully defund or change these things that the the agencies themselves turn to safest possible scientific investment, and instead you spend a lot of money on incremental science and less on potentially transformative uncertain science by the consequence of over eager, I hesitate to call it public oversight, but, but politically driven public oversight. Yeah. I, yeah, I understand exactly what you're asking. I, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I mean, I think the answer is yes, that there are spaces in federal agencies where there is room for risky you know, risky endeavors. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the periodic attacks on you know, on silly sounding science, certain legislators like to point to things that sound like questionable research. Um, and they've been doing this for years. In response to that, actually, there's maybe just one thing I'll point out that we do, actually, with us and, and, and uh, with partners, 
we sponsor something folks may or may not be familiar with this. It's called, they're called the golden, uh, the golden goose awards. And they're intended to actually highlight instances where absurd or silly or uh, unexpected research results can lead to incredibly positive real world impacts. You know, like, like for example, the, the, you know, the, the PCR tests that we, you know, that we use now to detect COVID-19, those tests have their uh, roots in research around bacterial life uh, living in the hot vents in, I, I believe it was Yosemite National Park or Yellowstone National Park, one of those. And we actually gave a Golden Goose Award to the, the researchers who made those initial discoveries decades ago that eventually ended up leading to, um, you know, these, these, these modern tests for, for COVID-19. I mean, there's like a couple of angles to this, right? So number one, there's political attacks on silly sounding science, and I think that there is, you know, there are those who question a lot of research, but there are also efforts underway to push back against that, those narratives and try to educate legislators on, you know, the value of even, you know, science that doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. On the other hand, there's another kind of way at this question, which is, which is the peer review system. Is it possible to get, you know, are, are we getting risky enough science coming out of peer review? Is it too conservative? And, you know, peer review is, you know, remains, um, you know, the way you get kind of the steady march of science. But, you know, it does, I think there is room for experimentation as well, right? Pursuing varied funding mechanisms like people-centered grants versus, you know, versus project grants, trying to use different models, you know, like research consortia and the ARPA model. There's various ways and, and, and we can kind of tweak the system and kind of build around the core, which is the, you know, peer reviewed science and kind of the traditional peer review system to allow investigators to take on additional risk, to shoot for the moon, as it were, and, you know, perhaps be a bit more creative than they might be able to within the confines of more traditional research. And I think there is a lot of interest in uh, in Congress in pursuing some bits of experimentation and how we fund science, how we approach it, what more uh, transformational pursuits might look like. It's one of those things I feel like, you know, just to put in the space world of which I'm more familiar, it's always easy to say you accept more risk, but when you actually deal with failure, that acceptance seems to dissipate. You know, I think about like the better, faster, cheaper program, two failures in a row and that was done, right? Yeah. And suddenly it wasn't cheap enough <laughs> to fail. Sure. I think we do have this issue of where public oversight, I philosophically profoundly agree that the public should have oversight over how we spend our, our dollars. But at the same time, we seem to have created a system that doesn't tolerate any failure. Mm -hmm. And that's al only allows failure. You look at something like SpaceX, which is kind of able to fail publicly all the time because it's a quote unquote private company. NASA couldn't fail like that, not only because it has that kind of oversight, but because it kind of symbolically represents national capability. And so scientifically, supporting kind of wild ideas that may or may not pan out, the framework or the infrastructure we have to evaluate scientific value or potential or validity seems to err on the side of, of conservatism in terms of what people are trying to do. I'm not quite sure how to use public policy to allow failure to occur without a reaction happening. Yeah. I don't know if you can solve that problem. That'd be great. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. Well, the other the other way to think about too is I mean there's there's larger profile technology endeavors that might cost you know several million a year, but then you have small scale small scale research grants you know project grants that you know might be 
you know, half a million dollars, you know, over three years. So maybe it's, I wonder if, you know, the relationship to risk and the acceptance or not of risk and failure probably is different for, you know, larger, more visible projects that take up lots of, lots of public dollars versus smaller research grants that are less visible. You know, the, the sources of those, I guess the source of the conservatism might be very different depending on which kinds of programs we're talking about. Yeah, it, it always strikes me, and and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts uh, or kind of how the impact of just overall R&D spending, how that's distributed throughout the country. So, I mean, I'll just say my I'm married to a, a professional scientist. I see kind of firsthand when she gets a grant that it can be what you're saying on the order of a few hundred thousand dollars over the course of a few years, but that helps pay her salary. A big portion of that goes to operating the university through overhead costs. A lot of it goes to paying students at a pretty minimal wage to do science. And you think about that scaled up, you know, we're talking about a few hundred thousand dollars. So if you're spending, you know, on the order of billions of dollars, that's a lot of people that you're supporting into existence. And that's a ton of students that you're allowing to work on science instead of having to flip burgers or something over the summer. It seems like pushing for even modest increases into science R&D, that would have huge implications into the scientific workforce, but also just into the economy more more broadly. Yeah, for sure. And there's, I mean, there's, there have been studies that have been done that find pretty extended economic impacts across the supply chain, like federal, federal grants that fund researchers in, you know, in Ohio actually have knock-on effects when it comes to I mean, of course, there's, you know, the, 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 the as you mentioned, the students and the you know, localized effects as well. But, you know, researchers that have to buy equipment, um, have to buy tools. I mean, the supply chain for those things that they buy, the materials that they buy, actually, that can have major ripple effects like coast to coast as well. So it is, I mean, there are some, some very, very real effects. You're absolutely right. There's also the research on the effects of short-term surges in science spending as economic stimulus, and I'm thinking specifically of, you know, in the, the 2008 recession, we had the Recovery Act and there was a, a you know, a lot of you know, almost $20 billion in, in R&D kind of one time spent as part of the Recovery Act. Um, there isn't a ton of research that I've seen yet that evaluates that, but what little I have seen suggests that there are actually some pretty substantial job creation effects that come out of federally funded uh, R&D and that they potentially could be much larger than, you know, than many other things that, that government might do. So there is real upside. Unfortunately, it's it can be hard to, at least as far as I'm aware, uh, it can be hard to kind of get a handle on. Let me bring this to some of the work that you just recently did at the AAAS, which was what happens when you take money away from science. Uh, here in the U.S., we just got out of this 10-year budget envelope of the Budget Control Act, which attempted to put significant spending restraints on discretionary spending, and I suppose some non-discretionary spending. You just did a recent analysis saying that, you know, even though Congress kind of reduced that restriction a number of times over the last 10 years, something like $200 billion was basically removed from what should have been spent at the previous trends um, in R&D. Can you just talk about kind of how you got to that conclusion and kind of what implications there does that have for science in the United States? Yeah, let's go back through the travel back through the mists of time to 
2010, we had the 2010 midterms. We had uh, the, the, the the Tea Party wave election uh, in 2010. You know, the Tea Party, you know, especially in the House, exerted a lot of pressure. They represented, uh, you know, to some extent, a backlash uh, in to some of the big deficits that government ran during the financial crisis in the previous few years uh, and other things as well. Right. It wasn't just about the deficits, but this kind of fiscal hawk energy kind of took the Congress by storm in you know, following the 2010 midterms. Um, it led to uh, debt ceiling crisis. And eventually uh, Congress adopted the Budget Control Act of 2011 as a deficit reduction measure. Now, the Budget Control Act, it really did three things, most importantly for our purposes, right? Number one, it set an initial set of spending caps below Congressional Budget Office projections, you know, something like a trillion dollars less than government was expected to spend over the next decade. So that's number one, you know, an initial set of 10-year spending caps. Second thing it did was it required the establishment of a joint congressional committee that would look at different ways to reduce the deficits, come up with some kind of a grand bargain, um, you know, mix of revenue increases and spending cuts and whatever. Democrats and Republicans get together. That's the second thing it did. The third thing it did is set up a contingency plan when that super committee, you know, the deficit reduction committee, if it were to fail, that committee did fail. And so the, the third step, the contingency plan kicked in. And that was a, a second set of even lower spending caps, again, over the period of 10 years, cutting another trillion or so out of the discretionary budget. So from the 2012 fiscal year, when the caps first took effect through the current fiscal year, 2021, the Congressional Budget Office projected they were going to cut you know, around $2 trillion over the decade out of the federal discretionary budget, which is where just about all federal R&D lives, discretionary spending. So obviously, this is, you know, major spending reduction below normal. Since those caps took effect in the law, you know, took effect on five different occasions, Congress has adopted a series of spending deals to partially raise the caps, you know, a couple of years at a time, usually. And so in the end, spending didn't come down by as much as the original authors of the Budget Control Act intended. Uh, but it still came down by quite a bit, right? It slowed spending down, especially in the first few years of the decade, 12 and 13. And 20, the 2013 fiscal year is when we had the big across-the-board cuts known as sequestration that took spending down for every program and agency. Since then, spending has grown a bit, but, you know, again, it's been shy of where it would have been. The question that I you know, wanted to, to try to get at was how much did we actually lose because of these spending caps? If you go back and you look at federal spending, federal R&D spending, um, and I just picked the 30-year period because we have you know good data on R&D budget authority over that time, and it got us past the space race. So I looked at federal R&D from 1978 up through 2008, right? So right, right at the start of the financial crisis. As it turns out, federal R&D on average grows by about 5.7% per year over that 30-year period. Not you know totally smoothly. There have been ups and downs, but on average, federal R&D grows about 5.7% a year. So I simply asked, you know, the, the, the question, what would have, how much would we have spent if we had simply maintained our historical average? And, you know, we allowed federal R&D for basic research, applied research development, if we simply allowed it to grow at the historical average, you know, no more, no less. So I projected that forward, then compared that against what we actually ended up spending. Um, and the results are, as you, as you mentioned, I think cumulatively, uh, federal R&D is is around $240 billion 
below where it might have been if we had simply spent at that historical average. Uh, that includes basic research, applied research, development. Annually, we're talking about, at this point, we're talking about a, a, an annual R&D budget that's about $30 billion less than it might have been otherwise. So these are, you know, these are big numbers. That's a lunar program difference. Yeah, these are, yeah, <laughs> if these you are, want these to stick huge. that in there. These are huge. These are huge. So you asked me what we lost. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? But I mean, I, you know, maybe um, everyone who's listening, I mean, imagine what your favorite federal science agency might have done if they had an extra 20% in their budget over the past decade, every year. What would NASA have done? Maybe we'd still have Arecibo. Maybe they would have done the repairs. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot of lost money. I was just looking at, uh, they do a survey of recent, recent doctorate awards, people who just got their PhD. They survey, do you have a job? Basically is one of the questions they ask. And you can see the dip in the percentage of all recent doctorates in, in terms of job prospects, right? During the beginning of sequestration budget control act and continued downslope. And it's, it's recovered somewhat in the last few years, but most areas of science, computer science is kind of the one exception, but most uh, doctorates who are getting degrees are still below where they would have been 10 years ago. So seeing your article and then having seen that data, you really think about how many scientific careers were forever stymied by this pointless cut. How many Absolutely. future scientists will we not have? How many future discoveries will we see delayed or not achieved? And it's impossible to answer that question. And then when you look at, of course, we should point out that the Budget Control Act failed in its goal. It, it did not reduce the deficit. The deficit continued to grow. Uh, yeah. And the U.S. debt, I mean, exploded in the last administration. I think something added like almost $8 trillion. So these cuts kind of happened for no reason. There's no, yeah, pretty much. they didn't yeah. achieve the goal. So it's just, it, it just kind of adds to that just frustration. And I think maybe more also says like how responsive science funding is to the overall trends of spending. Fundamentally, it's hard for them to buck those trends. Yes. And that's the problem with this equilibrium that we've talked about, right? Is, you know, the upside is that when things are going good, science tends to benefit sometimes more than other parts of the budget. But then we have, you know, we seem to have these, these periodic fiscal crunches, right? We had one, you know, back in in 2010, as we're, we're talking about, we've had them in previous times as well. You know, it was one in the nineties, there was one in the early eighties when, you know, the, 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 the kind of political equilibrium around science means that when spending comes down, well, science comes down with it. And I'm not surprised, by the way, to hear that survey data uh, regarding um, you know, the career prospects for, for I think it was for PhDs, you'd said, but um, mm -hmm. I mean, a big, you know, big chunk of the, you know, the next generation of STEM worker, um, you know, postdocs and grad students, I mean, they rely on federal financial support, right? So when we have something like sequestration, where every agency has to lose, you know, 5% of its budget or whatever, well, a lot of that's going to, it's going to knock on to exactly those, those young researchers. It's really unfortunate both in terms of the talent and the discouraged talent that we've, that we may have had over the past decade, as well as just the, you know, the discoveries that, that we've foregone that may have been helpful uh, in any number of addressing any number of the national, national challenges that we've got today. Yeah. I mean, there's an ethical aspect to, to science funding, I believe, where if you accept the idea, I guess that science leads to ultimately a bettering of human condition, whether through medicine or through technology, or just through the pleasure of understanding the natural world in which we live to lose or to under fund 
this endeavor, I think, actually has ethical implications to the nation and humanity writ large. And I think it's it's hard. It was it was kind of painful reading your article <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> um, but also, I think you provided it's like we can. It doesn't have to stay that way. We can grow back to where we were. And I think you said that the rate we'd have to start to grow is roughly nine and a half percent. Is that right per year? That's right. Yeah, starting where we are and getting back to that, you know, where that original trend line would have gotten us uh, would yes take about nine and a half percent a year. And again, the trend line is is is. 5.7%. That's the trend line that I use to, and that's the historical average. So basically, you know, it's, I mean, it, to me, a, a, you know, a great kind of scenario would be spending at that nine and a half percent annual increase uh, clip over the next five years, get us back to the historical trend line. And then, you know, kind of once we've hit reset in that, you know, in a sense, then see how, how much we can beat that trend line by, right? Like we don't, I don't, I don't know that we, we have to spend it Increase spending nine and a half percent a year forever. You know that's a that's a that is a fair bit of money, but at the very least, yeah, getting us back to that that original trend line, I think, would be certainly worthwhile for the reasons we've talked about. And then and but you know, but then once we're there, let's also still figure out how we can beat that historical trend line. Um, you know, to meet these meet these challenges. I was trying to do kind of back of the envelope calculations, like the last the most recent COVID bailout bill that we just passed probably spent more than the NSF has ever spent in its history. Like oh, maybe. <laughs> right. Like I think easily, yeah, actually, I think nine, it's roughly nine, yeah, 900 billion was the, the most recent one. And the NSF budget today is 8 billion a year. So yep. they've been around for what? 70, 70 years. Easily beats that. <laughs> so I think we got the money. I think as always the Thanks. point that I try to make is we have the money. Science is not the driver of the debt, nor the way to solve it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So as we wind down here, and I encourage everyone, I'll again link to your article. It's on. Well, it might be one way to. I'll, I'll, let me let me tweak what you just said. It's sure. It it might be one of the ways to solve it if we can drive at new innovations that create new industries. Yeah. You know, and, and address you know things like cures for Alzheimer's research, uh, or Alzheimer's disease, I should say. You know, the, the role that science can play in resolving our debt issues is on its upside, right? Not by cutting it. Yeah, if Tim Berners-Lee had retained some ownership of the World Wide Web Protocol and gifted a portion of that to particle physics as thanks for developing it, I think, you know, for example, like we would uh, easily have funded it, like paid for itself, right? All <laughs> sure. of what ever exists in particle physics, like if we try to think about things in, in that way. I think there's a lot of promise and I hope, you know, it's one of the things that we focus on the space side, but just more investment in science and R&D. Uh, that's what I was kind of saying earlier that, I don't think there's ever been a point where we can honestly say we've regretted that as a as a nation or as a or anyone any nation who invests in it. Like no one says that was a waste of money because it just fundamentally, even if you don't get a result you're looking for, you've paid people to pursue the scientific process, which is inherently a good process <laughs> to support, sure. and the people doing it. Well, we're wrapping up here. I, I wanted to ask. What has kind of changed in your mental model or what have you had to change, you know, as you've done this or have you had to change any things about how you understand how this works and why it works? Or have you had any pre-existing beliefs that you've had to revise based on the process of politics or doing this on a day-to-day basis? I'd been in, uh, you know, already been in D.C. for for several years when I came to AAAS and I you know, wasn't working on the budget, but I, you know, but I watched that process unfold. And I, I don't know, I feel like I had a pretty good, I mean, it wasn't like I was particularly starry eyed about how all this stuff gets done. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, Mr. Smith comes to Washington. You yeah. 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 Is, do you have any like 
misunderstandings, public misconceptions that are really frustratingly persistent, in your opinion, about how the process of budget and science policy works? Something that really irritates you in terms of what you see people saying on the internet, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> let me think about this. There's a, a wealth of answers I could give you when it comes to the budget. I mean, there's, there's two things I'd point to that sort of kind of bug me a little bit. I understand the reasons why people hold these ideas completely, but they're pretty, but they still get to me. But so, so one idea is the, the, the idea of the collapsing federal R&D budget overall, right? The disinvestment. And that's a word that I've heard used many times, you know, the idea of disinvestment or, or, or collapsing R&D in, you know, pursuing that argument, pointing to some of the trend lines we've talked about, right? The idea that federal R&D was much higher in the space race and it's, you know, it's lower that now it's collapsed and that's all true. But the biggest driver, I mean, I think the issue for me is that the biggest driver of decline for federal R&D relative to GDP is not basic science, right? Basic Federal funding for basic science actually peaked as a share of the economy in, I believe, 2003 or 2004. There was a, you know, a, a bit of a decline in the early 80s, I believe. But for the most part, federal basic science has grown. When people point to the decline in federal R&D, that's actually driven by development. And a lot of that is, you know, to bring it all the way back to how we started, declining spending for for d- defense technology. A lot of the, the Cold War technology acquisition that DOD used to do, they don't do it anymore at the same scale. So the biggest declines in federal R&D, it's not the R, it's the D. Um, but people that care about the R don't seem to recognize that that what was lost from like the 1970s is not the same thing as what many advocates are advocating for today, right? The kind of, you know, basic research, applied research, innovative, uh, you know, radical, you know, transformational technology type things. A lot of it, again, is on the defense side. So that's, that's sort of one just pet peeve. I just think it's a, <laughs> I think it's, it, sometimes it's, it's it, basically people point to that declining R&D and they call it basic science. It's not basic science. And, you know, I think it's just kind of people mislabeling or misusing the data and the trends in ways they shouldn't, in ways they should know better. So that's one. <laughs> it's complete. That's a complete like budget walk pet peeve. So, I, you know, I'm probably the only one on the planet who feels that way. Then the other thing is just simply the fact there is a notion that that Congress doesn't like research, doesn't like science, hates funding science. And I think I hope that, you know, over the course of this conversation, we've sort of uh, illuminated why that's not really true. And actually, Congress does often go to bat and many legislators go to bat for various parts of the research enterprise. And the fact that, number one, non-defense R&D has been fairly stable within the non-defense budget, number one, and then number two, within that non-defense R&D budget, certain agencies like NIH, NSF, uh, have actually done better than others. Um, and many other non-science agencies, hopefully, is a, you know, is a testament to the fact that, that actually there is still a lot of support and a lot of bipartisan support in the Congress for, for funding R&D. And I think the experience, the experience of the Trump years should... Um, you know, offer some additional evidence for that, right? And we just are coming off an administration that for four years tried their best to really gut big, big parts of the federal R&D enterprise. Uh, and Congress had none of it, right? Energy R&D, defense R&D, um, veterans medical research, um, NIH and NASA and others, you know, a lot of them did very, very well in the Trump years in spite of what uh, the Trump administration wanted. And that's was true whether 
Democrats are running Congress or Republicans are running Congress. To be honest, I don't think Congress gets enough credit for trying to do what they can to take care of the research enterprise. It's never perfect and it's it's never as much as anybody would like, but they actually they actually do try their best to to ensure a level of, of research competitiveness. And I, I, I think they do deserve some credit for that. Good hot take to end this discussion <laughs> on. Matt Horahan is the director of the R&D Budget and Policy Program at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, Matt, thank you for having such a great wonky conversation about federal R&D uh, budgets. It was great. I uh, hope to uh, have you back on sometime in the future. For sure. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Planetary Society Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer and his guest on this month's Space Policy Edition, Matt Hurahan. Uh, Casey, any uh, closing comments or thoughts about that uh, that interview? Well, if you like what Matt was and I were talking about, you can find a lot of his work on the AAAS.org uh, slash RD uh, website. We'll link to that in our sh- uh, show notes. And he's on Twitter at Matt Horahan. Um, you can find uh, occasional commentaries on budget and policy analysis there. Casey, I think we can leave it at that. Uh, I will just say that I look forward to seeing you and um, hopefully lots and lots of other people. The ticket sales are going well at uh, PlanetFest 21. Again, find out more about that, including Casey's session. And I'm hosting a few uh, at planetary.org slash PlanetFest 21. You might want to become a member. Get a break on your uh, registration for PlanetFest, planetary.org slash membership. Casey, always a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you. I hope that we can talk maybe before the March Space Policy Edition, and you can fill us in a little bit um, on the weekly Planetary Radio about those recommendations that are about to go to the Biden administration. Happy to do so, Matt, and hopefully next episode we'll start by celebrating a successful landing of Perseverance. Oh, man. I know we all wish for that. Casey, thanks again very much, and uh, I will see you soon. See you, Matt. That's Casey Dreyer, Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society. I'm Matt Kaplan. I hope you will join us uh, for the next weekly Planetary Radio, and I will be talking with Mark Hartzman. It's a great lead-in to uh, Perseverance, Arriving at Mars, along with Pope and Tianwen Wen. Mark has written a book called The Big Book of Mars. It is great fun, and I expect it'll be uh, just as fun a conversation. Uh, for all of you out there, look forward to joining you again in March for the next Space Policy Edition. Stay well and go Perseverance.